pilot's plane tanks. The 6th of June, 1944. The enormous secrecy, the undercover tasks, the subterfuge, deceptions and plots within plots. The gigantic efforts to prepare were about to end as the clock ticked down to the start of the largest amphibious landings the world had ever seen, before or after. It was shortly after midnight and Operation Neptune was underway. A part of the overall mission, codenamed Overlord, Neptune was the name given to the vital landing operations in Normandy. The capture of the beaches Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juno and Sword were the objectives. The task before them, huge. Many heroic events were about to unfold on both sides, but none more impressive than the Second Army Rages' attack on Pointe du Hoc. Despite intensive bombing, enemy forces were still occupying the cliffs overlooking the English Channel, and they could pour fire onto the beaches, particularly Omaha and Utah. Trained by the British commandos on cliff-climbing techniques, Rudder's Rangers began their assault in the early morning. The airborne element of this attack had been scattered due to strong winds and unexpected cloud, but the Rangers attacked anyway. Scaling the cliffs with ladders and grappling hooks, and despite awful losses, they gained the top, only to find that the artillery had been moved. Eventually their objectives were found and destroyed, but they weren't relieved from their small patch of land for 48 hours, by which time they had repulsed many counterattacks, and their numbers reduced from 225 to a mere 90. D-Day was to see many such heroics. I only wish I could mention them all. However, a remarkable flying story comes to mind. Operation Deadstick. It was early in March, and Staff Sergeant Jim Walwick was ordered to Netherhaven with six other glider crews. He flew the airspeed Horser glider, which at 67 feet long and weighing seven tons when loaded, was a substantial aircraft. No word on how they were chosen, but they came from various different outfits. All were sergeants. Standing in the middle of a field, his boss pointed out a couple of triangles marked out with white tape. They're not very big, but probably big enough, he said. You'll be towed to 4,000 feet and released three miles away. One, two and three make a right circuit and land on this one. The others make a left circuit and land on the other one. Now hop off for lunch. Take off at 1,300 hours. It wasn't the task that worried Jim but the line of Air Force and Army top brass who stood nearby. At the appointed time, they launched and in due course cast off, flew their circuits and plonked all six gliders onto the appointed spots. Mutterings of disbelief emanated from the astonished senior officers, and after a little low-key bragging by his colonel, they were asked to repeat the task. With perhaps a little luck, the result was exactly the same. So, although no one mentioned it at the time, from that moment their operation was on. A move to Holmes Clump 
an L-shaped wood just off Netheraven, was made for more realistic training. Jim didn't know who Holmes was, but that clump was forever engraved on his heart. Fourteen pilots made up the six crews with one as a standby. The parameters for the approach were changed, a 6,000-foot launch with different landing patterns developed. Vital timings were acquired. Downwind at 90 miles an hour for 3 minutes 40 seconds, a 90-degree rate 1 turn to a second course for 2 minutes 5 seconds, and then a final turn for the run-in. Two RAF officers, tug and glider specialists, helped to develop their tactics, and the crews practiced relentlessly. Briefings, courses, wind calculations and more practice was the order of the day. Finally, they started flying with darkened goggles to simulate night flying, and relying almost entirely on their instruments and a stopwatch. Only one glider was damaged when number six was late and arrived with a horrific noise. They all feared the worst, but luckily, apart from a few broken bones, the pilots were fine, but it was a good job that they had a spare crew. All in all, they practiced 42 times, and by June they had mastered their task, just in time for the airfield to be sealed as their live load arrived. Each glider had 26 member of the Ox and Bucks Light Infantry. Jim said that they were the best troops he had ever met, and they were glad of that. The troops had been training very hard, using bomb-damaged inner-city areas as training grounds and practicing assaults for weeks in the dark, using live ammunition. Finally, they were told of their objectives. Two bridges over the River Orne and Khan Canal were vital to the invasion. They were heavily defended and wired for demolition, but were of great tactical advantage. Their capture would prevent the German armoured divisions from attacking the landing beaches and also allow the British forces to move eastwards out from their beachhead at Sword. The only landing area was a tiny field between the bridges, deep behind enemy lines, and the small force would need to surprise the defenders or risk being overwhelmed. To add to the difficulty of a night landing, they had to try and avoid a large pond and barbed wire entanglements. At 22.45 hours on the day before D-Day, they took off. They were to be the first troops to engage the enemy, the tip of a vast spear that was moving over the English Channel towards the French coast. The men had been singing, but as they arrived over the target, everything went quiet. In absolute silence, the gliders were cast off in the perfect position. It was a lovely night, with a bright moon. Jim could see every twig, every cow, and the waterways were like streaks of silver. His training took over, and with Johnny, his co-pilot, calling the timings, he flew the approach pattern. As he finished his final turn, there, right ahead, was the target area. The silence and beauty were shattered as the glider hit the ground, crashing through the barbed wire defensive. Jim called stream 
and Johnny deployed the parachute that lifted the tail, it knocked the speed down tremendously and was only needed for a second or two before he could call jettison. And with about 60 miles per hour left, he squeezed the glider right into the corner of the field. With the nose wheel gone, the cockpit collapsed and both pilots were thrown forward onto the ground. When he came round, he found his co-pilot trapped and Jim struggled to lift the wreckage to free him. He looked back at the field as exactly one minute apart, four more of the gliders joined him on that tiny patch of France and he sighed with relief that the Germans hadn't bothered with anti-glider poles. They had thought the area too small to need such defences. The only casualty was a Bren gunner who was sadly found to have drowned in the pond. The light infantry got to work, but having arrived so quietly and in such proximity to the bridges, they were quickly successful. The assault lasted barely ten minutes, but cost the lives of two men with fourteen injured, the first casualties by enemy fire on D-Day. Perhaps fittingly, a small bar, the Café Gondry, beside the bridge, became the first building in Normandy to be liberated. The small band of men saw off a panzer attack, German infantry and even a gunboat in the following hours. The pilots did what they could to help, but after a while the parachute brigade arrived. By morning, as a result of the landing, Jim's legs had seized up and he became a stretcher case. Soon he was back in England. Jim Warwick flew gliders in every major British airborne operation of the Second World War, in theatres such as Sicily, Arnhem and the Rhine crossings. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Medal for his skill and bravery as the first pilot to land during Operation Deadstick. The skills of the pilots were recognised by Air Chief Marshal Sir Trafford Lee Mallory, who graciously described their achievement as the greatest feat of flying of the Second World War. Later that year, the bridges were renamed Pegasus, after the emblem of the Parachute Brigade, and Horsa, after the gliders who came in the night to start the invasion of France. Café Gondry still exists, and it's owned by the Gondry family. It still remains the first port of call for visitors to the bridge. I'd like to thank Mariana for prompting me to find a suitable D-Day story that would commemorate the anniversary of the landings. I hope this meets your approval. <laughs>